You know, one of the most damaging things to our society today has been the the rise of of moral relativism and uh, the idea that you've got truth and I've got truth and neither one of them may be the truth, but we've all got our truth. We hear that terminology a lot today. Uh, and it, it's got us to believe the idea that we can change something by just not believing it. Like if we just ignore it, pretend it's not true, then then it won't be true. But the Bible makes abundantly clear that, you know, we can say nothing for or against the truth. We can cuss the truth and it'll still be the truth. We can, we can bless a lie and it'll still be a lie. And there are some things that are just true. They're just true whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not. They are things that are true. One of these truths is that every person in this world is born hopelessly lost. There's nothing they can do. We are, we are all born in our sin. And as a product of that, we all are destined to die in those sins and go to hell if something doesn't change in our life. Uh, we're deserving of that. We may not feel that way. We may not see it that way, but it doesn't change it. It's the truth of the matter. The wages of sin is death, the book of Romans said. Uh, whether we accept that or not, it's, it's true. Another one of those uh, truths that doesn't matter what we think about it or not is that God is real. Uh, he's not waiting to hear back from you to find out whether he's real or not. He knows that he's real. The world created by him, meaning the, the physical world, knows, of course, that God is real. Our sin separates us from God. Uh, that's a truth. Whether we accept it, whether we like it, whether we, we affirm it or not, it is true that that sin that we're born into, it separates us from God. We can't have a relationship with God because of that sin problem that we have in our life. We're hopelessly lost. Another truth is that God sent his son to the cross of Calvary to die for our sin. Now, whether we accept that or not, or, or believe that or not, it doesn't change the truth of it. It's true nonetheless. It's, it's as historical as, as any other historical event that we might point to, is that God stepped out of, of the spiritual existence, robed himself in flesh, walked amongst men. He lived a perfect life. He lived a powerful life. He lived a precious life. And then he took that perfect, un, unspotted, unbroken record of righteousness and he went to the cross of Calvary. And he didn't deserve to go. He's the only one that didn't deserve to go because he was not a sinner. But he went nonetheless because he loves you and because he loves me. That's why he went. And in going to the cross of Calvary, he took our sin upon him. He said, I don't deserve to go. They deserve to go. But here's what I'm going to do. Though I do not deserve to go, I'll go. So that though they do deserve to go, they will not have to. And the Bible says he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, that's true. Whether we accept that or not, whether the world accepts that or not, whether men ever agree about it, it doesn't change it. It's the truth of the matter. And it's true. You remember I said we're hopelessly lost. It's true that in and of ourselves, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But let me give you some good news. There's nothing we have to do to save ourselves. Because he already did it all. On the cross, the final thing that he cried out before he committed his spirit to the Father was, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. Now, what was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the, the endeavor, the responsibility, the duty, the process of paying for man's sins. He said, it's, it's finished. Nothing else has to be added to it. We baptized last week. Praise the Lord. I love to baptize. Uh, but baptism isn't what makes a man saved. It doesn't make him more saved or better saved or more surely saved. Uh, all it does is show that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
so in other words, he didn't say it is finished, but you're going to have to get baptized too. Uh, it's true uh, that it's a good thing. Give charity, do good things. I'd rather you be good people than bad people. But no amount of good works can get a man to heaven. Uh, that's not how it's done. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, whether we accept that or not, that is the truth. And there is only one way to get to God's heaven. It's His heaven. He owns it. And there's only one way to get there. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the only way. Whether we accept that or not, whether we believe it or not. But can I tell you a truth that is just as true as all of those, though many people do not realize it. Miss Connie sang about it. There's liberty in Christ. There's liberty. Everything you're looking for, you'll find it in Christ. The happiness, the joy, the contentment, the peace. Now, I'm not promising you that the rest of your life is going to be a meadow field full of wild flowers and, and butterflies, but I am saying this, that if you're looking for peace, you'll find it in Jesus Christ. He's enough. He can give you peace. He can give you joy. He can give you contentment. He can, he can, he can give you a life that is worth living. And the sad truth is so many people die without ever accepting that truth that is immutable, that is inevitable. Whether we accept it or not, it is the truth of the matter. But I'm glad to report to you today there's liberty in Christ if we'll only come to Him. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, sometimes you just, you know, sometimes you can see the Lord just bringing some things together. And I'm thankful for the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He knows what He's doing better than we do. Uh, if I was to be honest with you, I rarely know what I'm doing. Amen? Some of y'all can testify to that. But he always knows what he's doing. We'll just mind him. He'll do things right. First Samuel chapter number 18. I want to read to you a few verses out of the early life of David, the king of Israel. Now at this time, though he has been anointed king, he is not acknowledged as king. Uh, and this is sort of the development of his relationship with the family of Saul, who is the current king of Israel, and of Saul's son, Jonathan. The Bible says in verse number 1, First Samuel chapter 18, it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Lord, I pray for those that could not be here today. There's some that are sick and unable to. Lord, some traveling. Lord, some that are just providentially hindered. But you know where they are. You know the reasons. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak to their hearts and lives wherever they're at, that you'd minister grace to them this morning. I pray that you'd meet their needs. I pray for those present here today, Lord. I believe you've brought us here for a reason. We're not here by incident or accident. We're here by providence. Lord, in bringing us to this place, you have provided an opportunity for a heavenly work to be done, an eternal work to be done in our hearts and minds. And I pray that that opportunity would not be lost on us but that we would receive with meekness the engrafted word, Lord, that we would hear the truth that's spoken and preached today, that we would accept the truth of the word of God. And Lord, that in whatever way it applies in our lives, that you would, Lord, minister that truth to us and that we would receive it and obey it 
and that we would accept the truth of God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. Bless this preaching hour. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First Samuel chapter number 18 could be described as about several things. It could be described as the acceptance and exaltation of David in his position and place in Israel. And certainly that's true. Uh, David is a young man. At this point, nobody really knows who he is. In the prior chapter, of course, God empowered David to slay the, the giant Goliath. So he's going to be a household name. But at this moment, he's not a household name. People don't know who David is. But when you come to the close of our little short passage today, you find that David is well known by all the people in Israel. It could be said to be about the acceptance and exaltation of of David over Israel or in Israel. It could be described as the uh, merging together of two families. Uh, Certainly before this moment, though Saul seemed to know to some degree who David was, he didn't know him uh, in an intimate, in a personal way. But after he slays the giant uh, Goliath, uh, David is brought into the royal court. And not only that, we're told about this friendship that develops between Jonathan and David. Uh, and the Bible is, is very explicit in describing the depth and the strength of that friendship and that relationship that they have one with another. But the thing that strikes my attention this morning is found in verse number 4. The Bible says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David, and his garments, and even to his sword, and to his bow, and to his girdle. I think it would be appropriate to say that this passage If it's about nothing else, certainly we could say that this is a passage that is about the giving of a gift. Their friendship is certified, is cemented in this gift that Jonathan gives to David. Uh, Your King James Bible is very specific and careful and accurate in the way it describes it. It says that he gave him the robe, meaning his outer garment, and uh, then his garments, which would have been his everyday clothes. So he gave him his coat and then gave him what we would consider our everyday walking around clothes. And the Bible is very clear that it went down to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. In other words, Jonathan's not stripping down to nothing here, but he's giving him the outward clothing that he has. And he gives him his weapon and he gives him his bow and he gives him the girdle, the belt that he wore. This was a kingly gift that was given to David. Remember, these are not just everyday beggars items. These are the ones that belong to the son and heir of the king of Israel. And in Jonathan doing this, there is not only something that is very practical and and endearing happening, but there's something very symbolic taking place. The Bible tells us that uh, the reason Jonathan did this was because he loved David as his own soul. In other words, he said, I would sooner die before I'd let David die. I would sooner David be exalted than me be exalted. In fact, he looked at it and said that when something good happens to David, It's like something good's happening to me. When something bad happens to David, it's like something bad is happening to me. And to represent this, he clothes him in his own clothes. As a way of saying, we now are friends to such a degree that we are inseparable and our friendship will never die and it will never be divided. We are now like one entity in this kingdom. When we read this passage, uh, there's three things about gift giving that I think are significant here. I would say, number one, it records the presentation of a great gift. So we said a royal gift, a, a meaningful gift. I mean, he gives him something that's, that's not just small potatoes. It's not just a pack of socks. I mean, he gives him a privileged position and place in the kingdom of Israel. Then I would say, number two, not only does it record the presentation 
of a great gift, but it records the pattern for giving a gift. Now this isn't my message, but I want you to notice how David did it. When he gave, or when, when Jonathan gave this gift, it was a genuine gift. It wasn't a false gift. It wasn't a gift that was meant to flatter. It wasn't a gift that was meant to further. It was a gift that was born out of a genuine heart. He's not buying David's approval. He's giving him this gift because he loves him already. Not only that, when Jonathan gives him the gift, there's no strings attached to it. You ever had somebody give you a gift and what they were really giving you was a rental ship of something that they wanted? I give you this gift, but now you got to do this with it and this with it and this with it and this with it. There's these strings attached and those strings attached. Man, don't give a gift that way. If you give it, just give it to it. Say, keep it in good health and, and honor the Lord with it. Not only that, when he gives it, he doesn't ask anything in return. I would say that a gift that's given but demands something in return is not really a gift at all, is it? It's really payment. Uh, there's a lot of things that we call, well, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to say when you give a gift, you're not asking for anything in return. You're just saying here is a gift. I'm giving you this because I love you. But then I would say this, that in giving that gift, he's seeking to communicate a greater truth. He's saying, I'm giving you this gift, and this is a token of something that I cannot take out and give to you, and that is my loyalty, my affection, my trust, my confidence, and my friendship. Man, it's a great pattern for giving a gift. You want to know how to give a gift to somebody? Look at what Jonathan does here. But then I would say there's a third thing in this passage. Not only does it record the presentation of a great gift, and it records the pattern of forgiving a gift. But I would say this, it also records a picture or a type of God's gift to humanity. Can I read a passage of Scripture to you in Ephesians chapter 2? I shouldn't say that. I'll be honest, even if you said no, I'd still read it. So I shouldn't do that. I'm going to read a passage now. Ephesians chapter 2 says this in verse number 1, talking about us as lost sinners, says, You have He quickened, that means to be made alive. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, if we stop and compare 1 Samuel 18 in this passage, there's a lot of similarities between what God did for us and what Jonathan did for David. Here's David, and he's an insignificant individual. No one knows his name. You could say his name is a dead thing in the land of Israel. But Jonathan, who loves David, he quickens him. He gives him a life in the land of Israel. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. Then it says, with Christ. He did not only give him a life, he gave him his life. He said, I'm going to treat you like I'm treated. He says, hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that's what Jonathan did for David. He exalted him to a privileged and royal position in the kingdom that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Jonathan didn't do this as a one-off gift. He said this is the beginning of an interminable friendship that we're going to have one with another. 
Then listen to what it says in verse number 8. I've quoted it already this morning, but it says this, For by grace are ye saved through faith. Now every true gift is a gift given in grace. It's a gift given not as payment, but as a gift. It is a gift that is given not because someone has earned it, not because they've made promises, not because they proved themselves, but it is a gift that is given out of love and it is a gift that is given out of the reservoir of riches that that person has and it is a gift that is given that is unconditional. It doesn't require them to do anything to retain or earn it. There's only one thing they have to do. They have to receive. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. When I read through 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan here reminds me of the Lord in a lot of ways. And David here reminds me of a lost sinner that receives the gift of salvation. For instance, Jonathan's name is interesting. It means, uh, really, and most Hebrew names were like this. It would mean sort of two sides of the same coin. For instance, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Ezekiel, the, the strength of God, means the strength of God and God is strong. And in the same way, the name Jonathan, here's what it means. It means both Jehovah has given and the gift of Jehovah. Even in his name, Jonathan reminds me of God because it reminds me, one, of God's salvation. That God has given His Son on the cross of Calvary, has given that unspeakable gift of His precious Son that we might know Him. Nobody's ever given you more than God gave you when He gave you Christ. No man has ever done more for you than God did for you when He sent His Son to the cross of Calvary. But then Jonathan reminds me not only that God has given, that He has in His grace granted us salvation, but it reminds me not only of God's salvation, but of God's Savior. Because what is the thing that Jehovah has given? What is the gift of Jehovah? It is salvation through Jesus Christ. If you remember when Jesus was born, they called His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And the name Jesus literally means Jehovah saves or salvation of Jehovah. In other words, we could say that the gift of God, which is God's salvation, was embodied in the Savior of God who was given for us so that we could know Him. With that in mind, when I read 1 Samuel 18, I'm not just reminded of the gift of Jonathan. I'm reminded of the gift of God. What Jonathan does for David reminds me of the salvation that was purchased for you and I on Calvary's rugged cross. What is it that reminds us about it? I want you to notice these five things and I'll be done this morning. Number one, look at verse number one. The Bible says this, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So, preacher, what is it about this passage that reminds you of what God did when He gave Christ on Calvary? Well, I would say, number one, we see the grace of a new connection. Prior to that, here's David muddling his way through the world, not connected to nobody. If you had, if you had caught David out on a road and like a bandit struck him down and stole his, his uh, purse of gold, nobody would have said anything about it. He was nobody. He was just a little shepherd boy, just a sheep herder, son of some obscure man by the name of Jesse. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody cared who he was. But now all of a sudden, he's somebody because he's the best friend of the future heir. When I read this, it reminds me of a few things. One, it reminds me they were connected by association. I love that phrase. They, their souls were knit together. Now, what are you doing when you're knitting? I'm not, I know this is going to shock you, 
I'm not a person who knits. But when you're knitting, what you're doing is taking one, two, three, seven hundred, I don't know, disparate numbers of threads of, uh, of whatever it is, and you are weaving them together. And the idea is at the end of the day, what was separate threads is now an inseparable garment. You look at it and you don't say, well, this thread came from that spool and, and this thread came from that spool. You can't tell where one thread begins and the other thread ends. You look at it and it's just one garment. The Bible tells me that Jonathan and David, their souls were knit together. And that reminds me of exactly what God has done for us through the cross of Calvary. The greatest example of this we've already mentioned this morning, which is what we would call the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The fact that when God looked down at the cross of Calvary, yes, He saw His Son, but more importantly than that, He saw sinners when He looked at the cross. By the same token, whenever God, seated in heavenly places, looks over on His right hand and sees His Son, not only does He see His Son, but He sees the saints of God. We have now been knit together in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I clue you in on something? You will never be accepted in the eyes of God. Jesus is accepted in the eyes of God. So unless you somehow get knit together with Him, you ain't never going to be accepted in the eyes of God. Now I'll tell you the beautiful process for that. It's very simple. We come to Him by faith. He said, if any come unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. I will receive him unto myself. He said, take my yoke upon you. And give me your burden. In other words, what he says is, we're going to yoke up together under the same yoke. So that when a person looks at us, they're going to see the same thing. The substitutionary death, the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. And by the way, before ever the outward garments were given, there was inward grace that prevailed. Can I tell you something? Before you ever got born again, God already loved you and proved that he loved you through the cross of Calvary. He already loved you. Now I understand the Lord's angry with the wicked every day. I understand that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God's a consuming fire. But for all of the statements regarding God's wrath and God's holiness and every one of them are biblical and scriptural and just as true as John 3.16, they do not negate the fact that beating in the heart of God was a love for humanity so powerful that it would move His Son from His throne and send Him to a cross of Calvary. Before you ever even heard His name, He loved you. Before you ever even knew who he was, he died for you. His soul was knit together. And now they were connected by association. If you looked at Jonathan, you might as well be looking at David. If you looked at David, you might as well be looking at Jonathan. In fact, if David had business to carry out in the kingdom, he could go out and when he gave instructions, commandments, when he said, I need this resource or that resource, men feared to not give it to him because they knew if they were saying no to David, they were saying no to Jonathan. You know the reason we can come boldly? have access into the throne room of God, not because we come in our own person, but because we come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has no reason to respect you or respect I, but you better believe He respects His Son, loves His Son, favors His Son. I'm saying this, the only hope of a sinner becoming born again, getting saved by the grace of God, the only hope that they miss hell and land in heaven is that they get associated through the gospel, through placing their faith in Jesus Christ, are associated with Him. That's what the new birth is. It's being born again. You weren't born right the first time. You was born into sin. Now you have to be born into the Savior by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. They were connected not only by association, they were connected by affection. It says he loved him as his own soul. What a precious statement that is. Loved him as his own soul. Jonathan proved this by taking his garments and giving to David. 
He gave him his sword. He gave him his bow. He gave him his girdle. In other words, the idea was Jonathan was saying, I'm, I am so trusting of you. I am so loving of you that I will make myself vulnerable here. I'll take my sword. Here's how much I trust you, David. I'll give you my sword. You can turn around and slay me with it. But I trust you and I'm willing to give it to you. And I love you just that much. In other words, he was forfeiting his authority, his power, his ability. Uh, we could maybe say it this way, that what Jonathan accomplished by taking his robe off, Jesus accomplished by putting the robe of humanity on. He did not cease to become God, just as Jonathan did not cease to become the heir of Israel. But it is true that he set aside all of the consequences, all of the privileges, we might say, of that divinity. Where he could have, have moved through this world with the same sweeping power and unchecked authority that, that God is entitled to. He being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. He could have come in all divine authority and expression, but instead he came and robed himself in humanity. Now why did he do that? He did that because of how much he loves broken humanity. He did it for you. He did it for me. Jonathan proved it by taking that robe off. But Jesus proved it by putting that robe on and giving us salvation through him. I would say that he was given the gift of a new, or the grace of a new connection. But then look at verse number 2. It didn't end there. So here we have Jonathan. He loves David. He, he, he values David. He trusts David. He loves him as his own soul. And because of that, verse 2 says this, And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Now, somebody out there is sitting there and going, Well, here comes the rascal Saul. And I'll agree with you. Uh, Saul is not a good man. He's not a righteous man. Uh, there's a lot of legitimate debate as to whether or not Saul uh, knew the Lord. I believe Saul was a man that had believed in the Lord and had righteousness imputed unto him. I believe when he died, he went to God's paradise. I think what Samuel says whenever uh, he uh, talks to him there uh, at the house of the witch of Endor suggests that. But I understand that by and large, Saul is a villain in the Word of God. But can I remind you that in this context, knowing nothing else about him, you know what we're reminded of? We're reminded that he's the father of Jonathan. And here's what the father of Jonathan does. He looks down and he says, my son loves this boy so much and cares for him so much that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give him a seat at my table. I'm going to treat him like my son. And I'm not going to let him go anymore down to that little hut down there in Bethlehem where, where his, his brothers and his daddy live. No, he is now a child of the king and he's going to be treated as such. I'd say this, he was given the grace of a new connection. Number two, he was given the gift of a new communion. He got a new family that day whenever Jonathan put his coat on him. Notice, number one, his person was received in the family. Though he is nobody, though he is deserving of nothing, because of how Jonathan loves him and because of what Jonathan has done for him, he is now treated like a full-fledged member of the royal family. Man, what a beautiful picture of what God did for us in Christ Jesus. Man, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't belong here. I don't belong up here doing this. I don't belong in this place. And guess what? Neither do you. I got no business being here. I got, I mean, humanly speaking, I got no business saying I'm a child of God. God, all glorious, all powerful, all miraculous. I got no business walking around with Charlie and saying, hey, God's my father. I get to do it. I got no business coming in here with good, decent church going folks and, 
and say, this is my crowd, but here I am today. I'm saying this, when you and I, when we got born again, here's what happened. We got translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. We got took from the old family to the new family. And all of a sudden, God should not regard my person. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm of the standard belief that nobody should listen to me as a general rule in life, all right? I was talking to somebody about uh, investing, and they were asking me some questions about Now, I don't invest because you've got to have something to invest first, but they were asking me uh, about different things, and they said, well, you know, what do you think? It was a buddy of mine said, man, brother, what do you think I should do? I said, number one, you should not listen to me. That's what you should do. <laughs> I'm of the general rule, but and yet I can go into God's throne room and the God of, of the entire universe will bend His ear low to hear what little old me has to say. What an amazing thing. Hey, listen, his, his person was received in the family. But then I like this next phrase. It said that Saul would let him go no more home to his father's house. Here's what Saul said. Don't even think about your old home. That ain't your home anymore. You belong here now, and I'm not going to let you go. You know what it reminds me of? When I got saved, not only was my person received in the family, but my position was secured in the family. I left that old family and I became part of a new family. And now it don't matter, hey, listen, who likes me, who hates me, who's annoyed by me, who adores me, I'm part of the family. I'm, I can't even take myself out of that family. I'm going to say it again. I can't even take myself out of that family. You know why? Because I didn't put me into the family. And when I got saved, I, I can't get myself unsaved because I'm not the one that saved me in the first place. I allowed Him to save me. I came to Him and asked Him to save me. But I didn't do anything to earn it. I had no part. Hey, I, ooh, I had no part in accomplishing what happened on Calvary except for the nails and the thorns. I didn't do a thing to secure my salvation. He did it all. Because of that, I can't forfeit it because it ain't mine in the first place. It's His. It belongs to Him. So in other words, when a person gets saved, their position in the family becomes secure. They're part of the family of God, and they will always be part of the family of God. Some of y'all got family. You've been trying for years to figure out how to get them out. It's interesting who laughed and who didn't. I suspect the people that laughed laughed because it ain't them. Some of y'all got family you've been trying to get out for years. You, you, you ditch them if you could, but I got news for you. And there may be people feel that way about me and about you when it comes to the family of God. I tell you this, but we're gonna have to go to heaven together. So let's just go ahead and get along by the grace of God. I see that his position was secured in the family. Then notice the third thing he was given. Look at verse three. The Bible says, then Jonathan and David made a covenant. Well, that's a strong word, a covenant, because he loved him has his own soul. So he's given the grace of a new connection. Now, when men look at David, they see Jonathan. When they look at Jonathan, they see David the same way that when God looks at Jesus, he sees me. And when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Our souls are knit together. He was given the gift of new communion. He was given a new family, part of a new family, out of the old family, and into the new one. But then number three, he was given the guarantee of a new covenant. I'm sure David had apprehensions at first. I'm sure he thought to himself, now, Jonathan's saying all this today, but what's he going to be saying later? You ever had somebody that promised you the world only to all of a sudden start ditching your phone calls? I've, I've had friendships die because people, people wrote checks with their mouth that they couldn't cash 
And I didn't even care about cashing that check. But they was too embarrassed to come to me and admit that they couldn't do for me what they promised they could. I've seen it happen. I've seen people say things. Oh, preacher, I'm going to bring you this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get you this, whatever it is. And never having the wherewithal to do that. You've probably had folks who said, now, honey, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. But their promise didn't hold a lot of weight because you know they didn't have the means to. I'm sure David was sitting here thinking, now, Jonathan says this today, but it's going to be blocking me on Facebook tomorrow. I know he, he says this today, but when I show up at the palace doors tomorrow to report for work, are they going to escort me off the property and say, we don't know who you are. Jonathan never said anything about you. So somehow, here's the reality. He had to have security for the longevity of the relationship. He had to know that what Jonathan promised was going to stick. How did they do that? Well, the Bible says that they made a covenant. There's ways, and, I, and I'm not going to get into all the details of it and, 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 and the security of it and why, uh, but there was a process for doing this in the land of Israel. Uh, you see this process employed whenever Abraham enters into the covenant with God in Genesis 15. What they would do is they would take a, a certain prescribed number of animals and they would sacrifice those animals. They would then part those animals in two. They would dissect them and they would put one half on this side and one half on the other side. And the two people making a covenant would then walk arm in arm down the middle of those things, down that trail, down that path of blood, reciting out loud their covenant one to another. And at the end of it, the idea was that that sacrifice bore witness to what had took place that day. That they both had promised and sworn to each other that they would keep this promise. And it was sealed in blood. You know, the book of Hebrews, I said I wasn't going to preach this. How'd that happen? You know, the book of Hebrews tells us this, that when God could swear by no greater, when God could swear by no greater, if he had said, I swear by Toby, it wouldn't have meant much. If he, if he had said, I swear by Charlie, it wouldn't have meant much. If he had said, I swear by Ken, it wouldn't have, when he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Saying, surely blessing, I will bless thee. Multiplying, I will multiply thee. You know what happened in the Old Testament whenever Abraham got brought into that covenant there? The Bible says in Genesis 15 that, that God commanded Abraham to prepare everything for the issuing of that covenant. And David, or Abraham, he took the animals and he slew them and he butchered them and he parted them out and he did everything. And then the Bible says, so here Abraham's already a part of this covenant, but he's a passive part of it. He's not done anything. He's not pledged anything. He's not promised anything. He has just prepared the sacrifice, all he's done. And then the Bible says that God put a great horror of darkness and a great deep sleep over Abraham. And when Abraham wakes up, here's what he sees. He's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And he looks over to where he prepared that sacrifice. And the Bible says that he saw a burning lamp and a smoking furnace floating through the middle of that sacrifice. Preacher, what's that all about? Man, that's weird. I'll tell you what it is. It's a picture of God when he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. He said, Abraham, I need to bring you into this covenant, but you can't be a part of this covenant because you're human and you'll break this covenant. So I'm going to have you prepare this covenant but then I'm going to go down and the, the burning lamp regards God's truth. The smoking furnace regards God's judgment. The Bible says on Calvary that God's truth and uh, judgment met together and mercy and righteousness poured forth. That's what was happening. That's what was pictured there. His God said, I'll reconcile my judgment and my truth. I'll do this salvation business on my own. I'll reconcile it. I'll make a way so that you don't have to. And Abraham got brought into that covenant. But it was God that made the promises. 
God walked up and down it. One part of the Trinity said, surely bless him. The other one said, I will bless thee. And the other part said, surely multiply. And the other part said, I will multiply thee. And God made a promise to himself. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews that by two immutable things, in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a sure anchor for the soul, a refuge that we might flee to. In other words, uh, if it was based on my promise or your promise, we wouldn't have much. Because we're a bunch of oath breakers. But God's never told a lie. God never will tear a lie. So you know what he did? He promised himself. He promised himself that based upon what Christ did on Calvary, he'd save the sinner that comes to him and puts faith in him. I would say that he was given the guarantee of a new covenant. Notice the promise that guaranteed their relationship, that covenant. But then notice the premise that guaranteed it. Why, what, what was the strength behind You can make all the promises you want, but that don't mean nothing. But look what it says. Because he loved him as his own soul. At the end of the day, David said, I have no promise of what tomorrow will hold, but I do know this, that Jonathan loves me. And he'll keep his word. Can I tell you this? We have a stronger refuge than David had because God has never lied. But do you want to know why he would do what he did? It's a question I've asked before. Why would God do what he did for me? I'll tell you why. Very simply, because he loves you. I've seen people love all kinds of inexplicable things. I, the the The... Unsweetened tea, techno music, ballet, things that defy human understanding. But I've never seen a more baffling love than the love of God for us. I can't explain it. But you know, I don't have to explain it. I just have to accept it. I don't have to be able to, to, to explain all of it. I just have to believe and trust Him. I see the guarantee of a new covenant. Look at verse 4. The Bible says this. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. So what all did David get in this gift? Well, he got the grace of a new connection. He got the gift of a new communion. He got the guarantee of a new covenant. But then I see he got the garb of a new clothing. Jonathan says, now, folks ain't going to know that we've made this covenant. So here's what we have to do. I'm going to take off my robe and put it on you. And when people see you walking by, they're going to think that's Jonathan because you're wearing Jonathan's clothing. You know that Jesus did the same thing for us in regards to our salvation. The old songwriter talked about taking off the old coat and putting on the new. And that's what he did for us on Calvary. The Bible, uh, it, 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 it exemplifies it. It represents it in that uh, coat of the Lord Jesus Christ that they gambled over whenever the Lord died. That You remember the Bible says that the soldiers took His garments and they parted them amongst themselves. And then they come to this garment. And the Bible says this garment was unbroken. It was, it was woven throughout. In other words, it didn't have any seams in it. It had no weaknesses in it. It had no, no joining places together. And when they got to it, they said this, we cannot separate these easily, so we're going to have to gamble over those in order to find out who gets it. You know that robe was a picture of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. No weakness, no weak links, no seams, no light getting through. Perfect, unbroken righteousness. What a beautiful picture that is. Here he's hanging naked on the cross. And he's took that beautiful coat and put it into the hands of the very people that are crucifying him. You know, that's what God did for us spiritually through Calvary. He took his perfect righteousness and took it off himself and placed it on the hopeless sin while he hung 
bleeding and dying and naked on the cross of Calvary. That's what 1 Corinthians is saying, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is saying when he said, For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Not that we knew no sin. We know plenty of sin. I, I know sin. You know sin. I know you know sin. And you know that I know sin. And I know that you know that I know that you know sin. It's Him that knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness. The righteousness of God in Him. What a glorious thing that is. He took off His coat and He traded it for our coat. (laughs) Oh, what a beautiful thing. He was given new apparel. The robe denotes an outward righteousness or we could maybe even uh, liken it to our positional righteousness before God. When a person looked at it, they saw that robe. But then the Bible says He gave him His garments too. Now, it doesn't mean His his undergarments. What it means is like His everyday walking around clothes. You could imagine the robe is is like a heavy outer coat or like a raincoat or a trench coat. But then He gives him not only that, He gives him His everyday clothes, his, His walking around clothes. In other words, He gave him not only a new cloak on the outside, He gave him a new cloak on the inside. So if there's positional righteousness, we also see practical righteousness. If there's outward righteousness, we also see an inward righteousness. Not only did He change how God sees us, He changed how we see God. He changed the way we live. He changed the way that we behave. He was given a new apparel. But then notice this. It says, even to His sword and His bow and to His girl. He was given not only new apparel, He was given a new arsenal too. Now, David had no weapons. Oh my. David had no weapons. I'm going to keep saying that and then you're going to catch up here in a second. David had no weapon. Remember in the prior chapter, he goes out with naught but a sling and five stones to slay the giant. When he's done slaying the giant, the Bible says he takes the sword, puts it in the sanctuary, he takes the armor and lays it up in his tent. But those are both showpieces. They're not swords, oh my, they're not swords of his own. They're swords and their armor of where God has slayed the giant. Up till this point, the giant has been slain. The sword and the army have their armor have been forfeit, but he can't put it on. You know what Christ did on Calvary? Let's just go ahead and put our waders on and go a little deep. You, you know what? He slew the giant on Calvary. Hey, he slew the giant. He laid low the devil's plans to somehow short circuit. God's redemptive plan for humanity. He went into death's domain. He took his crown. He broke his scepter. And he rode back victorious. But here's the problem. That's all good and everything, but that armor don't fit us. Just because the uh, enemy is slain don't mean that we are safe. There has to be a personal application in our lives. The giant had been slain, but that didn't give David no armor. No, what had to happen? He had to have a relationship with Jonathan in order to get that personal armor. Can I tell you this? Whenever, hey, it's true. He went to the cross of Calvary. He died for your sins. Death is a defeated foe. The devil has been thwarted. All that's true. And you can still die in your sins and go to hell if you don't know Jesus. You've got to come to Him. But if you'll come to Him, here's what He'll do. He'll take that robe. He'll take those garments. And He'll place them upon you. And then listen to what He does. He gave him three things. Number one, He gave him a sword. He gave him a sword. The Bible says in describing how the child of God is to be equipped with the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to be, uh, we're to be equipped with the word of the Lord, which is the sword of the Spirit. Hey, you probably owned a Bible before you got born again, but that Bible didn't own you. You probably had someone somewhere. You probably had one of them somewhere, and it sat in your bookshelf, but it, was, it didn't sit in your heart. 
When you got born again, now you have a new relationship with the sword of the Spirit. Now it's sharp and it's active and it is particular in your life. He gave him a new sword. Not only that, he gave him his bow. Now, here's what a bow is. A bow in that day was a long-range weapon. They didn't have no sniper rifles. They didn't have no mortars. So here's what they had for personal combat. You had a sword for that up-close work. But then you had a bow for that distance work. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me not only of the Scriptures of God when it talks about the sword, but it reminds me of the Spirit of God when I think about the, the bow. It, he's the long range. And I don't, I don't mean this irreverently, but He's the long range weapon. He's that weapon that lets us reach out from where we're at to the throne room of God. He's that weapon that lets us reach out from where we're at all the way halfway across the country to the heart of some rebellious child or grandchild. He's the one that enables us to be able to reach out and change the hearts and lives of people. And He is the one that tethers us to the throne of God. I see the bow. And then the Bible says His girdle. Now, the Bible's clear in Ephesians 6 that the child of God is to be girded about the loins with the girdle of truth. When I think about truth, I think, of course, the Word of God. But I also think about what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.15. Listen to what Paul wrote to young Timothy. He said, but if I tarry long, and by the way, preacher's been tarrying long for a long time, so don't lay that at my feet. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In the New Testament truth is likened to a girdle, and there's no greater pillar for truth in the life of the believer than the local New Testament church. So He gave us not only the Scriptures of God and the Spirit of God, He gave us the sanctuary of God. He gave us as believers in this dispensation of grace a body of believers that we can join together with, that we can be encouraged by, that we can grow with, that we can serve with. What a blessed gift that God has given. A lot of people despise the church. A lot of people think little of the church. i got news for you. Hey, Christ Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for it. It's a precious thing that God's given us. So I see He was given the garb of new clothing. And one final thing, and I'll be done. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him, and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servant. So let's just recap. What, what all did he get this day? What all did he get out of this gift? Well, he got the grace of a new connection. When you looked at Jonathan, he was looking at David. When you looked at David, he was looking at Jonathan. He was given the gift of a new communion. He was took out of his old family and put into a new family. He got the guarantee of a new covenant. Now his uh, security and his peace of mind was rested not upon the fickle feelings of other people, but upon the ironclad promise of Jonathan. He was given the garb of new clothing, a new outward robe that reflects of outward or of positional righteousness, new inward garments that reflect of, of practical or, or inward righteousness, holiness in our life. He was given a sword, the Scriptures of God, a bow, the Spirit of God, the girdle of truth, reminding us of the sanctuary of God. Then verse 5, here's what happens. He wakes up the next day and it's time to get to work. And here's what Saul does. Now, here's what days look like before this moment. For uh, David, he would wake up and he would report to his old father. And he would say to his father, now what do you need me to do today? And his old father would say, well, son, there's cows tended and there's crops to be brought in. And But but your main responsibility, you need to go out there and you need to, you need to herd those sheep and you need to follow those sheep and you need to watch those sheep. But now that ain't going to be what happens. You know why? His new father is not his old father. 
His old life meant listening to what his old father told him. But now he's been given a new father. And now he's going to do what his new father tells him. So he goes in to the throne room and he says, Saul, what king, what, what, what do you expect? I mean, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, be over the men of war. I want you to lead us out into battle. I want you to go out and I want you to war the wars of God out in the world. In other words, I would say this. He has given the glory of a new commission. His purpose in life has now changed. Used to, it was to listen to his old father. Do whatever he told him and follow the sheep around. But now it's listen to his new father and to go about carrying out his business. You know, the Bible tells us in John chapter 8, talking about the Pharisees, that they were the children of the devil. The way that Christ says it is he says that you're of your father, the devil. And every lost person, I know this seems like a severe statement, but it's not meant to offend. It's meant to enlighten. It's the truth of the matter. You remember we talked about those truths that, that are just true, whether we accept them or not. Before a person is saved, their nature is that of their uh, of their father, which is the world, the flesh, the devil more particularly. In other words, they do what the devil tells them. We already read that in Ephesians chapter number 2, right? The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, the course of this world, the lusts of the flesh. Those are the things that drive an unsaved person. We can claim them, we can fuss at them, we can be mad about it, or we can recognize they're doing what is in their nature. They're doing what their father tells them to do. But now when you got born again, you got a new father. You now have a heavenly father. And so if you've got a new father, you should also have a new vocation. That's what happened in, in David's life. God changed what his calling was. He was enlisted into a new calling. He was sent out wherever or whithersoever Saul sent him. And the Bible says he behaved himself wisely. In other words, here's what <laughs> I like this. Here was his job. Do whatever Saul says and don't embarrass him. Can I just nutshell the Christian life? Do whatever God tells you and don't embarrass Him. You ever have the parents tell you that you're embarrassing them? That happened to me last week. Would you stop it? You're embarrassing me. I thought, I didn't, I, nobody ever told me there was an age that you're too old to hide in those circular clothes racks down at the Sears, alright? It's not my fault. People need, the, the rules of society need to be a little clearer, is all I'm saying. You had your parents probably tell you, say, don't embarrass, you're embarrassing. We understand what that means. Don't bring shame to their name. Can I tell you, and there's a lot more I understand to the Christian life than just this simple summary that I'm giving you, but you really want to know what it is? It's obey Him. Read His Word, study His Word, follow His Word. And don't embarrass Him. Don't get out in the world and live wickedly and ungodly and bring shame to the name of Christ. You were given a new calling. He was enlisted into a new calling, but then notice he was exalted in his new calling. The Bible says, and Saul sent him over the men of war. Now remember, David's a young man, 17, 18 years old. I mean, the fact that he would be positioned over these grizzled, battle-scarred, uh, war-educated men is a remarkable thing. But you see, there's really only one thing that mattered. It didn't matter his experience. It didn't matter his ability. All that mattered was he was Jonathan's friend. You know, sometimes we look at it and say, well, I could never serve God because I don't have these talents, I don't have these abilities, I don't have these things, the world wouldn't listen to me. I mean, I could never be used of God. i got one question for you. Are you a joint heir with Christ? Are you saved by His grace? If you are, then why don't you... I'm not asking you to listen to me, listen to Him. When He tells you, this is what I want you to do, listen to Him. He knows He knows what He's talking about. He was enlisted and, and, and the Bible says He was accepted 
in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. Now, I'm not telling you if you get born again, everybody's going to love you or like you. You'll find there'll be some that all of a sudden God will grow their heart towards you. But most, if you've been living an ungodly life, most are going to like you less after you get saved than before you got saved. But I will say this, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turneth it whithersoever he will. I would say this, that success and favor in our life is not measured by how the world dictates whether we've been successful, but rather by our obedience to the calling of God in our life. In other words, here's what happened. David, David was exalted and furthered and promoted and advanced for one simple reason. He obeyed the king's orders and he behaved himself wisely. And you know what your life became about when you got born again? It, it might be nobody ever told you that. If, if so, I apologize for whoever didn't tell you. They should have. But when you got born again, your life is now no longer about you advancing yourself. It's not about you getting a bigger house or a bigger paycheck. God doesn't begrudge you those things. He might bless you with those things. But that's not what your life is about now. It's not what it's about anymore. Now it is about carrying out the Father's business. And you'll probably have some secular responsibilities along the way. And God expects you to work, provide for your home, provide for your family. Uh, he not only does not begrudge you of that, He blesses you when you do that. But I'm saying that the purpose in your life is now no longer temporal, tangible, or secular. Now your calling is to go about doing what the Father commands. That's the grand purpose of your life now. I'd say this, man, what a glorious day it was when David met Jonathan. And I can say for my life, what a glorious day it was when I met Jesus. Ain't nothing ever been the same since that day. It's all been different since then. So I got the question for you today. Have you met him? Have you received the gift of salvation? David didn't do anything to earn it, but he said, I'll sure take it. And you can't do anything to earn salvation, but are you willing to say, I'll sure take it? God will save me. I'll come to him. I'll quit trying to save myself. I'll quit trying to be, uh, you know, uh, try, trying through my good works or, or, or through my service or, or whatever it is. I'll quit depending on that instead. I'm willing to come to the Lord and admit I'm a hopeless lost sinner, that I can't save myself, that there's nothing I can do, but recognizing that He has already done it for me. And I will ask Him to forgive me and save me. If you'll come to Him today, He'll receive you unto Himself. And you can partake in that great glorious gift that He gave us on Calvary. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to the piano, Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that Your people would not be hesitant to respond to You. Lord, so many of us, undoubtedly, You've dealt with our heart because though You've given us this great gift, we've done shame to it. We've not lived the Christian life we should. We've not told others about this gift. Lord, and I just pray that You'd work in our hearts about that matter and that we'd be obedient. But Lord, undoubtedly, in a group this size, it would not be a surprise to know that there's some that don't know Christ. They've never been saved. This gift has been offered, but they've never accepted it. I pray that today they'd accept it. I pray that today they'd come to Christ. I pray that today they'd ask for forgiveness, that they'd be born again, that they'd be saved by Your grace, and that today would be the beginning of a new life for them. Lord, I love You. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this time. Bless this invitation in Christ's name with our heads bowed.